Hear now God's holy word from John chapter 17. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we praise you for the words of our Savior Jesus. And as we meditate today on the eternal covenant that you hold between yourself and your Son and your Holy Spirit, how you exchange glory and love and sacrifice and honor and obedience among the members of the Godhead. So, Father, bring us into that, that communion and union, even today in worship. Uh, lift up our hearts so that we may understand and appreciate all that you are, so that, so that we may live fruitful and happy and peaceful lives uh, within your covenant. So, Father, grant us this today. Uh, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, when we are small children, friendships are incredibly easy to make, ordinarily. Friendships are really easy to make when you're a small child. It's, it's pretty much on the basis of, hey, you've got a bike? Wow, I've got a bike. Let's be bike buddies. We'll ride bikes together. Or, you, you have Hot Wheels? I like Hot Wheels too. We're going to play Hot Wheels together. We're best friends because we have this common interest. But as we grow into adolescence and when we come to our teenage years, human relationships become exponentially more complex. Human relationships become fraught with fear and anxiety. They're a complicated dance of my expectations for you and your expectations for me, my position on the social ladder, your position on the social ladder of this, of this give and take, and whether in this relationship there's going to be levity, whether I can joke with you or whether I can't. I can't, I can't joke with you because the, the relationship is so grave. It's, there's so much gravity there. And as, and as we become adults, this just starts when we become adolescents. As we become adults, it doesn't get any easier in some respects. We mature, hopefully, as we get older. But I say hopefully because you know that's not always the case. There are adults who have the emotional composition of a toddler. They're, they're emotional toddlers. They don't know how to get along with anybody. They don't know how to receive correction or to uh, take things lightly. Or, or I mean, they just they stay in that spot. But hopefully we mature. We grow into ourselves we become more aware of who we are and we have our own identity that we carry into relationships. But even then, even as we mature, relationships are difficult, they are confusing, they're very often painful. And there are several reasons for this. Why are, why are relationships so painful and confusing and difficult? Well, uh, for one reason, any level of intimacy, letting you into my life at, at any level, means I have to let my guard down. I have to submit a part of myself to you. I have to open myself up to disapproval or to criticism. 
And it doesn't take too many times for you to open yourself up and then for someone to trample over that, that invitation, to trample over that, that opening up for, for you to say, well, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to open myself up that way again. I'm never going to open myself up to anyone ever. That, that's our, we can't do that, obviously. We must not. We must not do that. But, but that's a reaction and a response. Relationships are also painful, not only because we have to open ourselves up to pain, but because uh, we are bad at conflict management. We, we know the rules of how to disagree and we, we know how to get along. And you know, we all have Matthew 18 right embedded in us. It's, it's, it's baked in. We know the rules, we just don't follow them. We give very few people the benefit of the doubt. We give very few folks the judgment of charity. We almost never put things in the best, in the best light. You hear something, you say, what do they mean by that? You know, what, what are they thinking? Why did they do that to me? And, and we instantly put it into offense mode. Obviously, they did it to be offensive. And so we clam up or we blow up, but we tend to be terrible at loving, gentle, friendly exchanges of helpful brotherly or sisterly counsel and care. Uh, it's like we don't know how to do that. Everything has to be this tense, escalated confrontation. If it's going to happen at all, it's got to be this heavy production. And that's because of the next reason. We have a difficult time investing ourselves in each other. If I have a tough thing to sort out with you, if I have a tough thing to discuss with you, it's nearly impossible. It's not going to go well if I have no relationship equity built up with you. Or, or if you haven't allowed me to build up any relationship equity. You have friends and I have friends that could say anything in the world to us. They could, they could say anything at all and they have and you love them more for it. Uh, but a stranger who has no investment in my life has got a long way to go before I'm going to receive any correction from them. A few days ago, my, uh, a security guard told my son to tie his shoe. And I instantly got bowed up. I'm like, who are you to talk to my kid? I didn't say that, but that's what was inside of me. Who, who do you think you are? You don't talk to my kid. And, and then I had to calm down and say, it's not a big deal. It's, but here it is, a stranger telling me what to do. We, we have this response and this reaction. At least I do. It may be a male thing that we don't like to be told what to do ever. But um, it, you see then how, how important it is in order to hear and to be heard, to have a relationship, to have equity, to have invested ourselves in each other. And in order for me to invest myself in you and you and me, that means we have to give something up. I have to give up my time, my energy, my resources. I have to put aside my own pursuits and give myself to you and open myself up to you so that you can give yourself to me. Now, I'm mostly talking about friendships and an adult and adult uh, relationships here, but take everything I just said and apply it to the marital relationship between a man and a woman. And everything I just said is intensified, it is heightened, it is deepened. The intimacy is deeper. The ability to work through conflict is even more necessary. The capacity to give yourself and to open yourself up to be given to is even more vital. And in order to do this well, in order to do this in such a way that you can sustain the relationship until death do you part. You need something greater than attraction to hold you together. Raw, raw emotion 
infatuation, no matter how heated it is, will never keep you together for long. Even the thing we call love commonly, which, which is ordinarily just this emotion of being in love with somebody, cannot, this cannot and will not sustain you. You must have something more than all of these. You must have a covenant. In order for a marriage to be sustained, in order for it to last in a loving and faithful and fruitful way, there must be a covenant. A covenant is the highest and truest expression of love. Real love, because not just the emotion, but, but real love requires a covenant because love commits itself. Love submits itself. And there are so many, obviously, folks in our society who think, you know, that's about the most unromantic thing you could say. To bring a piece of paper into this relationship would tarnish it. To, to say that there's somehow a, a legal dimension or a covenant dimension in my relationship with you, well, that's just so stuffy. That's so, that's so awkward. That's so odd. Why would we do that? But in fact, it's faithfulness to your marriage covenant that keeps your marriage alive. Love is elevated, not diminished, when you give yourself fully to the covenant of marriage. Covenant is what sustains us in relationship. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that lasting, faithful human relationships of any kind, lasting human relationships are impossible apart from covenant. Covenant provides the boundaries, the expectations, the terms, the rules of engagement, so that we can be intimate, so that we can fix problems, so that we can give ourselves fully and freely to each other. The covenant is this walled fortress of protection, whether it's the covenant of the church or the covenant of marriage. It, it is this walled protection, this fortress of protection, inside of which we can be free and happy and connect with each other intimately. An understanding of and an appreciation for covenant is absolutely essential for Christian and faithful human relationships. It's only within the bounds of covenant Christian fellowship in the church that we have any hope of peace and concord. And I say this boldly, and I say this even though it may sound like an overstatement. You may be thinking about qualifications, but listen to this. God doesn't relate to us apart from a covenant. If, if God doesn't relate to us apart from covenant, how are we going to say that, well, we don't, we don't need any kind of covenant to, to get along. We don't need any kind of bounds or definition of our relationship. And even more than that, God's relationship to God is in the form of a covenant. The members of the Trinity are all covenanted together, submitting to each other, indwelling each other, and so if the, if the covenant is at the heart of who God's, God is, and if, and if covenant is at the core of our relationship to God, then it seems that our relationship to each other must be seen and understood and defined in terms of covenant. And I want to explore this a little bit, especially on this Trinity Sunday, where uh, we, we look at how the relationships of the members of the Trinity inform and shape our relationships to each other. And again, even as I use the word covenant relationship, I realize that, that that's a redundancy. It's a redundancy to say covenant relationship. It's kind of like saying ATM machine or PIN number, right? ATM means automated teller machine. So if you say ATM machine, you're saying automated teller machine machine. Are you following me? Are you okay? Is everybody okay? PIN number, personal identification number, number, 
right? Is that what we're saying? So covenant relationship is a redundancy. Uh, a, a covenant is primarily, foundationally, a covenant is a relationship. One textbook way of defining covenant is to use the word, a covenant is an agreement, or, or to use the word contract. And an agreement or contract may catch a piece of it, but remember, God's relationship to his people is not described only in legal terms, but he talks about his covenant in fatherly terms, in shepherding terms. In Deuteronomy 7, when God renews his covenant with his people, listen to how he, how he talks about this relationship. He says, you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because Yahweh loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, now listen to that and think this is something more than two equal parties coming together, drawing up a contract and sealing it with a handshake. Right? This is something greater than, an, than that kind of agreement or that kind of legal arrangement. This is God choosing his people, covering them in his love, delivering them, saving them from the hand of the enemy that was oppressing them, and then giving himself fully to his people. And in response to this, his people are obligated by the covenant to respond to him in love. The very next verse, after, after that in Deuteronomy 7, God says, Therefore, know that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So there are obligations to this gracious, loving, tender, fatherly covenant that he makes with his people. There are obligations to love him back and to keep his commandments. We tend to want to drive a wedge between God's gracious acts, which we call his grace, and his obligations, which we call his law. We want to act like those are two opposite uh, things that are, that are set in opposition to each other, as if there's some kind of dichotomy there. That if, that if God is gracious, then he must not expect anything. Or if he has expectations, then he must not be very gracious but that's not how relationships work. That's not how the covenant works. And thinking back to the covenant of marriage for just a moment, on one level, marriage is a legal relationship. There are things you must do to maintain the, the legal dimension of your marriage. There are things you must not do if you intend to stay married. Married. There, there are obligations, there are expectations, there are boundaries. But to say that marriage is simply a legal arrangement would be to miss the whole point. Uh, the Bible defines marriage as a loving, intimate, physical relationship. And the fact that there is a legal aspect to this doesn't distract from the love. It doesn't interfere, interfere with the love. It is the seal of the love. It makes the love more solemn and official. Love is exalted by the covenant that surrounds it. Love and obligation are married hand in hand in the covenant, grace and expectation. So it is with God's covenant with his people. His grace and his law are not enemies. They are brought together. 
God's relationship to us is gracious. It is always gracious. We tend to think that grace is just for lost people, or grace is just for sinners, or God's grace is only for, only for those who don't believe. Somehow grace is the thing that flips the switch that brings them to faith, and then they don't need grace anymore. No, He is always gracious to us. We are, we are buoyed by His grace. We are sustained by His grace. So God's relationship to us is always gracious and has expectations. His relationship to us comes with obligations. Now those expectations and those obligations have, have uh, grown up. They have changed in Jesus from the Old Testament days to the New Covenant days. Um, just as your expectations for your children change as your children grow. And as God has grown up all humanity, all of the law is transformed and grown up and matured in Christ. But, but God's loving relationship to his people is, is now and has always been expressed in the form of a covenant with obligations to obey, to worship, to repent, to renew covenant. This covenant between us and our brothers, between us and our spouses, between us and God, this covenant relationship is grounded in the covenant held among the members of the Trinity itself. God himself exists in an eternal, loving covenant relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that God is not alone. God has never been alone. And when he creates Adam, he says to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Loneliness and complete independence and extreme rugged individualism are not godly. They're nothing like God. And so when you just want to be left alone, when you just wish everyone would leave you alone and get away and get out of your face, that's not godly. That's not anything like who God is or what God wants for you. To be image bearers means for us to exist in community because God himself exists in a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has always done so. God has always existed in community. There's never been a time where God has been alone. And I love the way this comes bubbling out in Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17. We read just a bit of it at the beginning. I want to read the rest of that chapter, and I want you to listen for how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all interact in this great, amazing plan of redemption that Jesus is praying through here. Listen as I read this. Listen for the interaction of the members of the Godhead. I'm going to pick it up in verse 6, right after Jesus says, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, And they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I I do not pray for these alone, but also for them who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me. I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Put all this together with the things we read from John last week about the work of the Holy Spirit, and you see that the relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their actions toward us are all mixed up with their relationships to each other. And the way the members of the Godhead act toward each other are all mixed up with the way that they act toward us. What might first seem like the Son's actions toward us also end up being the Son's actions toward the Father. The way the Father treats the Son is the way the Father treats us. And in this passage, there are all these wonderful ambiguities in the way that the members of the Trinity exchange love and sacrifice and glory. And when we're brought into that relationship with God through union with our Lord Jesus Christ, we get caught up in all of these expressions of love. We, you and I, get to tag along as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all interact with each other and love each other and indwell each other and share glory with one another. We see that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. The Spirit is in the Son, and the Son is in us, and we are in Him. Are you keeping up? Are you taking notes? Have you got that all diagrammed out? The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, the Spirit is in the Son, the Son is in us, and we are in Him. The Trinity is all about these relationships and bonds of covenant between us and three equal persons of the Godhead. So then, the Trinity is a template. The Trinity is a model for human relationships. Certainly marriage but all human interactions, especially with believers with whom we are covenanted. Paul can say in Philippians, he can say, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul can say that certainly because it's right and true and good, but also because this is how God acts toward God. When when Paul says, let each esteem others better than himself, he's not telling us to do something that God hasn't already done. This is how the Son treats the Father. This is how the Spirit treats the Son. God isn't an angry, he's not an angry Unitarian monad after his own fame and his own glory. The Father is zealous for the glory of the Son. 
and each esteems the other. Nothing God does, nothing he does is through selfish ambition. Nothing he does is for arrogance or, or conceit. We do, we do it all the time. We act that way all the time because we're not like God. We are selfish and our selfishness is what kills our marriages. Our selfishness is what kills our relationships to other people. We esteem ourselves better than everyone else, unlike what the scriptures require of us. Now, we may not do it verbally. We may not esteem ourselves better than everyone else openly, publicly, verbally, but we always think of ourselves as, as better than others. We, we do this all the time. It's second nature. We always think, well, I'm, I'm really more compassionate than those people. I'm more considerate. I'm more thoughtful. I'm more righteous. I'm more moral. I'm more diligent. I'm more hardworking. It's all over the way that we treat others. The relationships of the Trinity, however, show us how to esteem others more highly than ourselves. If the Spirit and the Son and the Father all do this, if the Spirit can humble himself to glorify the Son, and the Son can humble himself to glorify the Father. How, how, who, who are we to esteem ourselves more highly than another? The relationships of the Trinity show us how to give freely and fully of ourselves. The way, that, the, the way that God has done for us, the way the Son has done for the Father, the way the Father has done for the Son, not only to give ourselves freely and fully, but also to open ourselves up to be served. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter tried, uh, Jesus tried to wash Peter's feet and Peter said, Lord, forbid it, absolutely not. Do not wash my feet, Lord. And Peter, Peter completely denied Jesus uh, from washing his feet. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you don't let me do this for you, you have no part with me. Peter, if you don't let me serve you, uh, you completely have missed everything that I've taught you and everything that you're supposed to have learned to this point. But, but why do we, like Peter, refuse to be served? Well, there are a lot of good reasons, we think. We don't want to be indebted to anyone. We don't want to be beholden to anyone. We don't want to be obligated to reciprocate. If you do something for me, then I might have to do something for you someday, and I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to have to do that. But that's because we don't think like God thinks. We don't act like he acts. We don't love like he loves. Each member of the Trinity is ready and open to receive the love and exchanges of glory from one to the other. So then, three quick uh, formulas or three quick statements about the Trinity and human relationships and how the Trinity informs us. First, and I've already alluded to this and said this, but first of all, the Trinity is a model for our relationships to each other. With a Trinitarian understanding of who God is, we see that God is emphatically personal. God is personal and interpersonal. When John tells us in his epistle, when John says God is love, that doesn't mean simply, well, God is nice or God puts up with a lot or, or God just kind of gets along. But that, that the triune God is the very definition of love. God shows us what love is and what it looks like and how it is put in practice by his inter-Trinitarian expressions of love and how that flows out into his love for us. And these expressions of love are always sacrificial and self-giving. This is how God defines love, primarily by his perpetual self-humbling interaction with his people. 
We see this demonstrated once again in John 17. The God who delivers us, the God who saves us, is the God who speaks to us. The God who has come down to our level to communicate with us and reveal himself to us. And this is the God who sacrifices himself for us. He sacrifices himself to himself, for himself, for us. This is the God who obeys God. So, so if God submits to God, then who are to be we to be independent and not submit to each other? If God sacrifices for God, then who are to be we to be selfish? If God speaks to God, who are we to ignore each other? But even further than that, we see that this is the God who not only interacts, of course, with himself, but always interacts personally with his creation and with his creatures. At the very end, the last thing Jesus says in this prayer in verse 26, he says, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Yes, God has this relationship within himself, but he opens up this Trinitarian relationship to include others. The activity of the Trinity and the exchanges of glove and glory don't terminate on God himself. God doesn't close himself off and circle the wagons. God doesn't hoard his glory. He doesn't hoard his love. The Trinity is not a clique. It's not an inner circle. Rather, the Trinity bubbles over in love and creativity and imagination. And he creates people to, to put in the world, having created the world, he creates people and he continues to superintend the creation in order to bring more people into it. So the doctrine of the Trinity insists that God is only known in personal response and engagement and that the people who have been brought into the fellowship and communion of the Trinity open themselves up to love and open themselves up to be loved like the members of the Godhead. That the Trinity uh, uh, informs us in our community how to love and to be loved. Secondly, the Trinity is a basis for all Christian theology and the basis of all Christian theology is covenant. In this window that we get in Jesus' prayer, this window we get into the inner workings of the Trinity we see that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have covenanted together to bring about the redemption of mankind. They are with each other. They are in each other. They possess union. What does this reveal to us about the way that God relates to us? The way that they relate, relate to each other is the way that they relate to us and the, the ways that we're to relate to him. So the promise of Christ is God with us. The promise of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit in us. So it is an eternal reality first that they are all with and in each other and then all of that gets promised to us that we will be with and in him and that he will be in us. This language of God being in us and with us is all grounded in the fact that the members of the Godhead are all with each other and in each other. They're all interconnected and in union and communion with each other. So then, this is the goal of salvation. This is the goal, the reason that, that, that covenant is the only hope for peace, peace and unity and, and brotherhood among mankind. The covenant is not a 
remedial plan. It's rather the very fabric of God. It's at the root of creation. A covenant is not a, an arrangement to deal with a particular problem. It's not just the means by which God accomplishes salvation. Rather, the covenant is an end in and of itself. Covenant is the goal of salvation, not simply the mechanism to secure it. The goal is that we would all live in and with each other, in and with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the covenant, and that is the goal of all creation. Thirdly, Trinity, and finally, <laughs> Trinity shows us personal sacrifice for the life of another is at the root of creation because it's at the root of God. Jesus Christ is God who suffered in the flesh for us. All the great hymns, I was trying to come up with a list of, of all the great hymn lines that confess that Jesus Christ is God who gave himself for us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? And then, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? And, uh, uh, and can it be, when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. Over and over and over we hear this great theme presented throughout good Christian hymnody. Each person of the Trinity humbles himself before the others, seeking not his own glory, but the glory of the other. Jesus gives himself. Jesus, the God of, 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 of our salvation, he obeys unto the death. He gives himself completely. And the Father hears the Son and answers his prayers. The Son obeys the Father. The Spirit is sent forth from the Father and the Son. Sacrifice then is at the very heart, the very fiber of God's character. So, if you and I are to be godly, if we're going to imitate God, then we must participate in the active life of God, which is a sacrificial life. It is a life shaped by the cross. When we, when we go through suffering and we experience suffering, we think, oh my goodness, what happened? What did I do wrong? What is happening to me? When, in fact, we ought to say, oh yeah, I should expect this. this. This is normal for me because this is what I'm called to. The cross does not recruit spectators. We are not an audience for the sacrificial acts of the members of the Trinity. Rather, in our baptism, we are grabbed and we are pulled into the Trinitarian actions of loving and giving and dying. This is against our human nature. We don't like this. We like to stay aloof. We like to mind our own business usually, or at least appear to mind our own business. The Trinity, however, does not allow us to remain independent agents. It pulls us into the dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is for these reasons that I always want to keep this in front of us. I always want us to make sure that our faith and our practice are all shot through with the doctrine of the Trinity. I never want you to forget that we are Trinitarian Christians. And that's why every year we stop and observe Trinity Sunday, to keep these things before us, that the Trinity is not some esoteric, impossible to understand doctrine. Surely there's a lot of mystery. But there are things that we can know and there are things we can hear that we can grapple with and these things have real near application to where we are right now. God himself exists in an eternal covenant community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He brings us into that covenant community and then he gives us his covenant where we relate to him 
and we relate to each other. Apart from faithfulness, apart from love, apart from fervent dedication to the covenant, none of us can get along. None of us can agree. None of us can love each other. We can tolerate each other to a point. We can kind of put up with each other for a while, but that wears out very quickly. It is the faithfulness to the covenant, the covenant born in the Trinity that keeps me faithful to you and keeps you faithful to me. Apart from faithfulness to the covenant, human relationships are unsustainable and impossible. So then let us pray for wisdom that we would better understand our triune God and his nature, that we would delight in all the mystery and the wonder, but at the same time take hold of what the Trinity teaches us, that God has come near to us and that he is a community and God relates to us by means of this covenant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we praise you for this eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you have revealed to us. And not only have you revealed it to us, but you have invited us into it. Father, just as your Son is in us and us in him, just as your Spirit is in us, so may we indwell each other in intimacy, in in life, in love, and sacrifice. So may we be so interconnected that that you are pleased and the world sees and knows that that our unity is uh, a reflection of the unity that you possess and the love that you possess between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So bring us into this day. Bring us into these exchanges of love, we pray continually. In Jesus' name, amen.